This is Bite Sized Blessings. Good morning and happy Sabbath, uh, family. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to another episode of Bite Sized Blessings. This is the podcast designed to anchor your week and strengthen your Christian walk. I am your host, Charles Eaton. Um, and how are y'all doing right now? Y'all doing okay? Let's check in. How y'all doing? Um, I am in a good mood today. Um, I'm in a good mood today, and I, I'm putting a question mark on it because it's kind of like unpredictable. I didn't anticipate being in a good mood this morning, but here it is. Um, and 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 I guess it's also notable because especially in the last few weeks, good moods have been so rare for me lately. Um, I have been just completely enraged, furious, angry, um, basically all the time over the last two or three weeks. And I'm sure it's going to come back. I have a lot to be mad about right now. Um, anger is a sign that something has gone wrong. And I want to honor that anger when it comes. But I also don't want to just, I don't want to chase away this good mood that I'm in in the moment. I don't want to look forward to the end of it. I want to sort of sit in it and 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 enjoy it while it's here. Um, because it's been it's been a while since I've, I've felt good. But I think today will be a good day. I think today will be a good day. Um, and so I don't know how y'all are doing. That's how I'm doing. Uh, angry most of the time. But but right now, in this moment, I feel good. I woke up smiling. The sun is out. I'm going to get some Mexican food later. Life is, life is okay today. Um, so today, for today's bite, uh, I want to look at allyship. I want to look at biblical examples of allyship. And uh, we're going to look at two different stories. We're going to be looking um, in, we're going to Exodus and we're going to Esther. But the first place we're going to go is Exodus chapter 2. We're going to go to Exodus chapter 2, verses 2 through 10. Um, Exodus chapter 2, verses 2 through 10. And uh, this is sort of, it's not really a sequel to the talk that we did about Shipra and Pua um, earlier, uh, a couple months ago. But it is, it is... This does take place basically just after um, the episode of Shipra and Pua in terms of chronologically in the Bible. So Exodus chapter 2 verses 2 through 10. I'm reading from the uh, New Revised Standard Version, but feel free to bring and read from whatever Bible you have. And it reads as thus. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that she, when she saw that he was a fine baby... She hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she got a piperous basket for him, plastered it with butamen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the bank of a river. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her attendants walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid to bring it. When she opened it, she saw the child. He was crying, and she took pity on him. This must be one of the Hebrews' children, she said. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get, a get you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Yes. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse it for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed it. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she took him as her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. 
this is interesting, right? So this 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 tale is coming, like I said, on the heels of Shipra and Pua, and therefore on the heels of Pharaoh's decree um, to basically kill a generation of Hebrew babies, right? And so we see here that we have uh, Moses' mother and father. Uh, they wed, uh, they have a baby, and they are desperate to avoid the baby getting killed. And at some point, they decide that the best thing they can do for this child, and I, I, I can't even begin to understand this level of desperation to say that this child has a better chance of surviving if I put it on a basket in the river and ship it down the river than if I do if I raise it. Like, what, what does that say as a society to say that, my child is safer in the water in a basket than the child is safer. Um, the child is safer in the water in a basket than it is in my arms, right? Like that's a crazy place to be in as a society, but that's where they were. That's what they felt they had to do in order to keep Moses alive. Um, and so they ship Moses in a basket downriver and just be like, you know, whatever happens, happens. And the basket is picked up by Pharaoh's daughter. Um, and, and, and she ends up basically adopting Moses. She sends Moses back uh, for to his mother for a time. And then once uh, the baby has grown up a little bit, she takes Moses in. And now Moses lives um, as her son in the house of Pharaoh. And this, this, this is sort of complicated, right? Because this turns out to be a very important point in Moses's development. Um, Moses receives the training as an Egyptian prince, and Moses receives the uh, mindset and the leadership skills as an Egyptian prince, and later he uses that um, in order to free his people and to lead his people um, to Canaan, um, but he gets that training here, and so I, I, I'm about to critique the Pharaoh's daughter um, in a second, but I think it's important to note that how the story actually played out is critical to Moses's development. I think it's very important to see like the hand of God is clearly in what happened here. Um, so this is all, it's a nuanced critique. I'm appreciative of what happened. And even that appreciation we're going to talk about in a second. Um, but something that I, I am noticing um, is she is Pharaoh's daughter, right? She has access to Pharaoh, she is a princess. Um, and what she did when she encountered Moses is she employed an individual solution to the problem, right? She says, me as a person, I'm going to adopt this baby and raise this baby so that this baby doesn't have to be killed. Something that is a good thing and a brave thing. I want to make sure I say that. That is a good thing and a brave thing, right? Like, I don't know um, what threat her life might have been under if Pharaoh found out that she was raising um, a child that was not Egyptian um, but Hebrew. Um, I imagine it, it might be pretty severe <laughs> to undercut her father's policy like that, um, like in his own house. That That's probably a bad thing. Um, this may have been her risking her life. I, I don't know, um, but it may have been. Um, I, I do wonder a little bit if the dad knew that Moses was Hebrew or not. If Pharaoh knew that Moses was Hebrew, I do wonder. Um, you know, how do you have a child just kind of show up one day and be like, this is my son when you didn't see her pregnant? Like, you know, that like you got to be a little bit suspicious, <laughs> I think, you know, to have her just show up basically one day like, oh, yeah, this is Moses. This is my kid. And you're like, wait, when, what, when, where, how, why? Um, and I, I my, my guess is this is just a guess. I am speculating. This is pure speculation. My guess is 
that Pharaoh was aware that Moses may have had suspicious lineage. Um, but my guess is also that he loved his daughter so much that, you know, he kind of turned a willfully blind eye to it. Um, but I don't know. But I, I think these things matter a little bit, right? I, I'm speculating about this for a reason. Um, because while I am grateful for what she did, um, I am also disappointed, right? Uh, Pharaoh's daughter is literally adjacent to power, literally adjacent to power. She is in the house. She is royalty. Her dad is the one who made the decree. Um, and as part of that power structure, if she disagreed with him on his actions, I would have appreciated her to use her positionality as princess and not her positionality as Egyptian woman, right? She brought an individualistic solution, um, even though she had that access as a person of part of the royal family, right? If you really disagreed with what your dad is doing, go tell him to change the policy. That's what I would hope, this, that's what I would like to see from her. Um, while I am grateful that she actually adopted Moses and helped Moses become the person who, you know, he eventually becomes, um, I definitely think it's, it's the good option and not the best option, right? The good option and not the best option. See, uh, Moses sort of won a lottery, right? Moses won a lottery. Moses is the token who, who got past the quota system uh, to make the people in charge of these racist and oppressive institutions think that, oh, actually, we are doing enough to combat the oppression. We have a, we have a quota, and, and Moses made it. Moses is our token, uh, and, and, and so we're good. And I think it gives people like a false sense of security that like you're doing enough. Um, I was reading an article just the other day um, the editor-in-chief of Vogue, she's very famous, and her name is slipping right now. I forget her name, but she she came out and she said, um, ah, oh, man, yeah, Vogue hasn't been doing enough to support black people, and, and they should have done better, and um, it was a nice statement. Um, that was nice, but you know, it's sort of like <laughs> you run Vogue. This is, this is your company. What do you mean Vogue should have done better to, like, if you felt this way, you had the power to do this. You were editor-in-chief. If you wanted to feature, you could have featured. If you wanted to have more black covers, you could have had more black covers. So don't, don't come to me after the fact on some, you know, oh, you know, Vogue could have, we could have been better. Like, yeah, like, I don't want the statement. I want you to actually do the work, right? Um, the statement is good, but the statement is beneath the power that you have in order to affect the change that you think and you are claiming is a good thing. Um... So this is not a random woman, right? This is the daughter of Pharaoh. This is a princess. I, I want a princess's solution to what's happening with the Israelites, not the solution of a random Egyptian woman. Um, and sort of to, to illustrate this a little bit, uh, I have a good friend of mine, uh, Corey Johnson, uh, went to Oakwood with him, and and we have gotten into several um, very good arguments about <laughs> Kim Kardashian and uh, uh uh, so for those who don't know, uh, Kim Kardashian has recently, uh, she is now in law school, I believe in California, um, studying law. Um, she has been recently used a lot of her uh, money and, and power and status to um, highlight cases of people, specifically black people who are in the prison system for cases that they um, probably shouldn't. They're in for too long or uh, unjust um, detention. And she has been she's been working with some lawyers um, to get some of these people out. 
Um, and this has included going to the White House and thanking Trump for granting, you know, petitions and all this stuff. And it's, it's kind of it's kind of complicated. Right. Um, and me, as someone who who is a lawyer, who is very public defense oriented, uh, I like the individuality of what Kim is doing. Right. So many celebrities say they care about issues, but they're not going to law school. They're not out here um, funding law, uh, funding lawyers for, for people who need them. They're not out here doing the work themselves. Um, Kim is. And so in that sense, Kim is doing far more than what like most celebrities are doing in these causes. Uh, but my friend Corey would say Kim has so much money, so much status, uh, so much power that who cares about this, these individuals that she's able to help, right? Who cares if she's able to get like four people out um, that would have been in? Um, Kim has the potential to enact systemic change and use her power and wealth and status and and positionality in society to create policy change and do this for hundreds of thousands if not millions of people um and so Corey sees what kim is doing and says okay you could be doing more i see what kim is doing and saying i am grateful for what you are doing um and it's led to a, a series of really good arguments and discussions. And I think part of the reason why they are good arguments and discussions is because we're both right, in a sense. Um, I think it is appropriate to say, wow, Kim, you are doing more than what people normally do. You are adopting Moses. You took the basket out and said, I will raise it. You are putting your money up uh, in a way and, and, and going to law school and really working hard on an individualistic level. Um, and thank you for that. That is important. These people are out and they are grateful. That is good. Um, and then it's also very appropriate to say, is, is that all you like, is that all you could be doing? Could you not be doing more? Perhaps you should be doing more. Look at all the millions and billions. Look at your friends. You have access to the White House. You are getting on criminal justice panels and talking to Trump when people who have been doing this work for decades can't get close. Look at all this access you have. Perhaps you should be doing something more systemic. Perhaps you should be doing something more on policy. Um, I think that's a very fair critique. Um, and that's what's happening with Pharaoh's daughter, right? I'm seeing Pharaoh's daughter um, taking Moses out, and I'm grateful for that. But I'm also saying perhaps you, you could have done more. Um, and I want to contrast that, right? The reason I would, so we're looking at two stories. I want to contrast what Pharaoh's daughter did to Esther. Um, let's go to Esther chapter four and verse 10. Um, Esther chapter four and verse 10. So Esther, the, where, where we're picking up the story in Esther, she has already been made queen, but she has now heard of Haman's plot to kill all the Jews. Esther is a Jew. Uh, she won a uh, uh, sex contest um, to become queen. Um, she becomes queen. The king picks her to be queen. And soon afterwards, uh, she's passing as a, as a, uh, she's passing a Persian. I think it's the Persians. Yeah. She's passing as a Persian, but she's actually a Jew. Nobody knows it except her uncle. It's this whole really interesting um, dynamic of what it means to pass in society and the power and privilege that comes with it. But where we're picking up the story, uh, Esther has found out that Haman has a plot to kill all the Jews. Esther is a Jew. Nobody knows she's a Jew, so she'd be safe, but all her people would be in danger. Um, and this is part of her conversation with Mordecai, um, her uncle, who's a Jew. Um, this is part of that conversation. So Esther 4, chapter 4, verses 10 through 16. Then Esther spoke um, to Hathak and gave him a message from Mordecai saying, all the king's service and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law. All alike are to be put to death. 
Only if the king holds out the golden scepter to someone may that person live. I myself have not been called to come into the king for thirty days. When they told Mordecai what Esther had said, Mordecai told them to reply, Do not think that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silence at such a time as this, relief and deliverance will, will rise for the Jews from another quarter. But you and, your family, you and your father's family will perish. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to royal dignity for just such a time as this. Then Esther said in reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in, Zeus, in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will also fast as you do. After that, I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Um, some classic, classic lines in Christian uh, parlance, right? Perhaps you've been put in this position for just such a time as this. Um, I will go, and if I perish, I perish. Um, really good stuff there. Um, but the point is, I want to compare um, what Esther's response to a very similar type of genocide, right? Where this is still genocide both ways, genocide of the Jews, Um Esther is queen, Pharaoh's daughter is princess. That's a difference, although I don't think that difference makes a difference in this case. You feel free to disagree with me, but I don't think that difference makes a difference. Um, Esther explicitly says that if I go into the king, I am risking my life. I could easily die. Everybody knows if you go to the king without being called, you could get killed. Um, we don't have such a type of explicit um, uh, death threat above Pharaoh's daughter's life, but I think it's fair to assume that this probably is one. Like, um, I don't know if you can just go against the king's decree all willy-nilly, as she did. So we, we I, I think it's fair to say that there's probably a death threat over both of their lives. Um, Esther could have said, well, Mordecai, I don't know about everybody else, but you and me, we gonna be good, bro. I'm gonna get you out. You're my uncle. I got you, right? She could have taken Pharaoh's daughter's approach um, and just sort of picked one or two people to win the lottery and pull them out um, and, and say, I'm going to rescue you all. And that would be a good thing, right? That would be a good thing. But is that the best thing? Um, Esther instead says, I'm going to use my position as queen and advocate for a systemic solution. I want the policy to stop. I don't want to rescue one or two or three lives. I want the policy to end. And that's the difference between her and Pharaoh's daughter, right? Pharaoh's daughter said, I'm going to save my one life, my two lives, and I'm good. And Esther said, listen, if I perish, I perish, but I'm going out swinging and trying to knock down the whole policy and save a whole people. Um, and I'm curious about like why they have these different reactions. And I think there's two reasons that I've thought of. Uh, I'll share with you and then we'll close out. The first thing I think why they're reacting differently is Esther is genuinely a part of the people that are at risk, even though she is also elevated and above that risk, right? Esther is a part of the people. Pharaoh's daughter is very much not. She is she's an Egyptian. Um, Esther is a Jew. Um, and I think that matters, right? That investment in the community is going to dictate a stronger response. Uh, to put it up uh, simply, Esther cares more, right? Esther cares more. These are her people, her cousins, her kin, and that caring leads her to say, I need a bigger solution than uh, this individualistic, I will pick out my two or three people and we'll be good. Um, so that's, that's, that's one difference. Um, uh, another difference, though, is... is, is I wonder if, like, if you pit, like, there's a different reaction if you have pity for someone versus, like, horror and disgust, right? When I see what happened with Pharaoh's daughter, 
I look at her reaction, I read it as pity. I read it as sort of like a pang of sympathy, like, oh, look at the poor baby. Oh, that's so awful. What can we do? You know what? Okay, let me let me do something. That's that's just so awful. I feel so bad. Let me let me adopt the baby. And like I said, it led to good it led to good stuff. It's not a bad thing that she did this, but I don't think she felt the intrinsic horror and disgust at the situation like Esther did, right? To me, in my eyes, I'm reading Pharaoh's daughter as like generally okay with the policy, but wanted to do something like good in this specific situation. Whereas Esther is uh, not okay with the policy from the jump. Esther is upset with the policy from the beginning, and that's leading her to fight from a policy side, whereas Pharaoh's daughter is fighting from an individualistic side. Um, and I think um, you look at what Jesus did, right? Um, I think that particular difference is really important because when you see Jesus divest from all the power and the prestige of heaven, and I think this is why it's important that Jesus also became 100% human, right? Because Jesus then took on that same identity that Esther had. Jesus was not above and beyond and looking at uh, humans as with pity, right? Jesus became part of the people who he was here to save, 100% human and 100% divine. And I think that, 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 um, that relationalness, um, Jesus's willingness to take on that identity and become a part, that dictated a policy solution, right? Jesus was not here to, you know, classic, you know, not here to save two or three people, you know, pick his favorites, Enoch, David, you know what I'm saying, uh, John the Beloved and uh, Mary Magdalene or whatever. Like, Jesus wasn't here for a crew. He came for everybody. And in doing so, we needed a systemic solution to sin. Um, and I believe that solution was easier for Jesus because Jesus was also part of the community in which he was saving. He became 100% human. Um, so that's where we're at today. Um, just looking at the difference between individualistic and systemic solutions and the incentives that lead people to pick one or the other in terms of where they want to help, right? This is for, I know like people want to help, um, but not all helping is equal. Some helping is better than others. So here are some discussion questions. First, why do you think uh, Esther and Pharaoh's daughter reacted the ways they did? What fueled the differences and how they um, chose to respond to the situation? Pharaoh's daughter's individualistic reaction, Esther's systemic reaction. Um, you've heard what I think um, fueled that. What do you think? Um, second question. This is kind of a big one. What, what is the value of individual action as a Christian? What is the value of individual action as a Christian? So our, our traditional response is very inside out, right? Uh, some of you may have heard the phrase, you know, you convert the individual. And is you convert the individual, you can get the family. And if you convert the family, you get the neighborhood. And if you get the neighborhood, you get the city. If you get the city, you get the county. You get the county, you get the state, state, the country, the country, the world, etc. Um, what are the pros and cons of this approach? Has this been effective? Um, do you have examples? Um, do we need to rethink that? Do we need to tinker it? Is it good? What do you think? Okay, that's all. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for um, this good day and this good mood that I want to sit in and, and, be, and be good with and not chase away. Um, thank you for the reminder that, that, that anger is not the only emotion I can feel right now, but I, I'm a mix. I'm human. I'm nuanced. And joy can come in unexpected places. Um, I pray, Lord, that you be with those who are listening, be with their families, keep them safe, um, 
I pray, Lord, that uh, they uh, the that the podcast was blessing was a blessing to them. Um, that they ruminate and marinate on the discussion questions and and seek to understand you better. Seek to understand what it means to be a Christian in these times. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Okay, thanks for listening. This has been uh, an episode of Bite Size Blessings. Tune in next week, and we will get right back at it. Y'all have a good one.